the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. In millions of homes every day, children grow up in addictive families and abide by certain rules. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. According to today's guest, Dr. Claudia Black, the survival roles and coping behaviors these children take on can eventually lead to addictions, abusive relationships, and mental health disorders. Dr. Black is a world-renowned expert on addiction and codependency, a best-selling author and trainer recognized for her pioneering and contemporary work with family systems and addictive disorders. Welcome, Dr. Black. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jones. Great to be here today. So, Doctor, let's begin by talking about the problem of children being raised in a home with addiction. How prevalent is this situation? Today, we think that approximately one out of every six children is being raised in a home affected by somebody else's substance use disorders in particular. But not only are alcohol and drugs one of the addictions that they're often subject to, we also have a lot of behavioral addictions. But when it comes to drugs and alcohol, at least one out of every six children. Doctor, was that number before the COVID pandemic? Do you think that we will see a higher statistic because of it? That number absolutely was um, before the pandemic. And I don't know if the numbers will change, but what we do know is that I don't think the pandemic is causing somebody to become necessarily addicted. I think what it's doing is exacerbating the addiction for those who were already in the process. Now, we do know that people's drinking and using is substantially increasing. Uh, Whether or not they end up being addicted is another story. But there's absolutely no doubt that if they're already in an addicted family, the dynamics and the negative aspect of that will certainly be exacerbated. And then the consequences for the children, seriously exacerbated. Right, because they're being confined in a home. They don't have that outlet in, in many states of going to school. They're now, in essence, locked in with the addictive behavior. And then the person who's struggling with the addiction um, is going to be struggling all that much more to be able to garner their drug of choice. Um, And then as they're increasing their use, the personality changes are going to be there. The controlling behavior is going to be there. The anger outbursts are going to be there. But not only are children impacted by the person who's experiencing an addiction to substances or even behaviors, but they're also impacted by whatever the relationship is with the other parent if they're raised in a home with two parents. Um, That other parent may become more emotionally reactive. That other parent may also show a lot of signs of depression. That other parent may have unrealistic expectations of the kids. So they're not solely impacted by the person with the addiction. They are often equally and sometimes even more so negatively impacted by the other parent. Do children tend to have more anger for the non-addictive parent, perhaps feeling that they may not be defending them or protecting them in some way? They often have more. I wouldn't say they tend to more so, but they often have more anger with the non-addicted parent. They'll have anger with the non-addicted parent for enabling the, the addict. They'll have anger with that parent for not protecting them. They'll have anger with that parent for 
uh, sometimes staying with the addict when they think the answer is if mom would just leave dad, we'd all be okay, or if dad would just leave mom. So there's certainly a lot of anger with the non-addicted one as well. Sometimes they even see the addicted person as the victim because if the non-addicted parent gets angry, they will see the addicted person become victimized and then they'll actually align themselves with the addict instead of the non-addicted parent. We can see that this is is a, a problem that's impacting, based on these statistics, so many of our children. So what are the effects of living in that environment? What happens to these children? We often think of the addicted person as having their own denial process. Well, one of the first things we see in family members is they, too, have a denial process. They learn to minimize. They learn to discount. They learn to rationalize. As a little nine-year-old said to me one time, in our family, we just pretend things are different how they re- and how they really are. And she was talking about her own denial process. They learn how not to talk honestly about the real issues. And in time, you know, initially that's a defense against the pain and trying to find some stability in the home. But in time, that becomes a skill, and they're going to take that with them into their adult life. They're going to take the ability, the skill of minimizing, discounting, and rationalizing with them. They learn how not to show the range of feelings because it's not safe in this family, which to show those feelings. And they take that with them, which is an emotional disconnect from other people into their adult life. They learn that they cannot trust. The most important people in their lives, they're not reliable in which to be able to trust them. So they typically go into adult life with trust issues, which all of this is going to interfere with every aspect of their life. It interferes with their adult intimate relationships. It interferes with their parenting skills. It can interfere with their performance in work, uh, interferes with uh, career choices and things that can happen for them in careers. I do want to say that not all people are affected the same that some children are able to be more resilient than other children are, and that's for a variety of different reasons, and that all kids, I think, raised even with all kinds of adversity can show strengths, but usually with those strengths, there's going to be a flip side of that. It's not what they learned oftentimes that gets them into trouble. It's what they don't get to learn. A lot of kids learn a high tolerance for an appropriate behavior, and what they don't learn is how to set healthy boundaries for themselves. A lot of kids don't learn conflict resolution. They don't learn healthy problem solving. Some kids learn to initiate, but they don't know how to follow. And for other kids, it's the flip side of that. They know how to follow, but they don't know how to initiate. So all kids are not the same, and that's why you'll see differences amongst them. And even kids within the same family uh, may show differences. For one ends up using substances themselves, and another one becomes anxious and depressed. And another one goes into perfectionism and looks like the family hero and yet has a lot of self-loathing that gets acted out. So it can look very different, but ultimately they're all operating from a place of fear and shame, the belief that who I am isn't good enough. So when on the surface a child appears to be well-adjusted because they become so proficient at masking their feelings, how can we reach those children so that we can help to mitigate these these different situations that you've just described? Well, first let me say that, and it will never happen to me, I talk a lot about what you just referred to, the looking good kids. Probably 80% of kids addictions in the family have the ability to look good to the outside world, and they take on various roles that bring them a greater sense of safety that allow that. They become hero children, they become family caretakers, they become mascots, or they just learn how to be invisible and not draw any attention to themselves. So the question was, how do you reach out to them? I think that you reach out by validating the reality of their life. So many times that they're living in this turmoil and that there's never any validation for the truth. So if if we can find ways in which to validate what their reality is that they're often not talking about. They may not even have a language in which to talk about, but anything that we can do to help educate children about what addiction looks like in the family, because they have a lot of misperceptions about what addiction can look like. We need to help give them the messages that they're not causing the problems in the home. They're not responsible for their mother's depression. They're not responsible for the fact that their dad doesn't come home night after night, possibly. Um, that they're not responsible for this, they didn't cause it, nor are they going to be able to find the so-called cure for that. And that their job is, and a part of our job is, we need to help these kids 
problem solve, um, learn problem solving skills, the problem solving in a vacuum. We need to help them learn self care, how to take care of themselves when they're scared. Where do you go? Who can you talk to? What would be the best thing for you to do to be able to calm yourself down and feel safe in this moment? Depending on the role that kids are in, there's various things that we can do. I think the one thing we need to remember is they're children, and we still need to um, give them the opportunity to be age-appropriate, to engage with their peers in an age-appropriate way. Their job isn't to take away other people's pain. Their job is not to become the other parent in the home. If they become invisible, our job is to try and help them have some visibility and to help them feel like they have a voice and that there's somebody there that's going to listen to them. For a teacher or a family member or a friend that may see a child who's in an environment like this, and the child seems fine. As you said, many of these kids become masters of masking their emotions. So is it a good rule of thumb for someone who loves this child to assume, even though he or she appears to be adjusted, that, you know, some help would just be a good practice in all situations? Some help would be a very good practice in all situations. And, you know, what you can do in terms of intervening is really almost take a look at the roles that they're in. So when you have a child who um, they are the responsible child and they become the parent to themselves and everybody else, or in the classroom setting, they're going to want to become the teacher's helper. That's not what they need to be doing. That's what they do best. What can we do to help facilitate them feeling more comfortable on the playground with their peers? When you have the child who wants to be invisible, who doesn't appear to be in any kind of angst, what can you do to draw them out in terms of one-to-one relationships um, so they begin to find comfort in that relating? When you have a child who takes away the emotional pain out of the home, um, what kind of message can you give them about that you can take care of your own pain? You can take care of this right now. You just need them to, to go play. Um, when we work with kids, we actually do our therapy work in the context of play with them in terms of teaching them how to ask for help, teaching them how to express various feelings, teaching them how to take care of themselves and not be taking care of other people at that given time. And, you know, we don't have to talk about the addiction in the home to be of help to the kids. What you really want to do is give them the opportunity uh, to be age-appropriate and to have healthy skills around asking for help and knowing what to do with their feelings, knowing how to calm down when they get upset. You know, if you're a child comes and spends the night with your child and they're a child from an addictive home, what you may find is that they spend all the time with the adults because they're seeking their attention. Um, and just giving them some attention in the garage when you're working on the car, giving them some attention when you're in the kitchen doing some cooking um, is a message that says, I value you um, and I like having you with me. You don't have to be talking about what it is that's going on at home. I don't want to make therapists out of school teachers, out of neighbors, out of extended family members as much as how can you, in essence, uh, be a resource to a child in, in pain um, and give them a sense of comfort and a sense of safety at the same time. Doctor, what about the person who finds him or herself in a relationship later in life with a child who grew up in this type of situation? You listed a a laundry list of things that that person could experience, behaviors later on. If you're in love or you're friends with someone who has a detachment issue or, you know, um, has just become so equipped hiding emotions, how do you stay in a loving relationship with that person? What can you do to help have a strong relationship? First, don't personalize their their behavior. Don't take it on as there's something wrong with you. And and you're talking about an adult now. And so one is give them feedback. You know, when this happens, um, and this is how I feel about it, um, to not somehow think that they can willfully be different. They really are going to need their own recovery process. So if you can say, Um, when you get angry, um, or when I see you getting angry, you walk away from me and you're not willing to engage. I wonder if this is not connected to your history. Would you be willing to take a look at that? Um, and so I'd give them what I, I say, I call them conversational seed droppers. 
I'd absolutely offer them some resources. I'd offer them some books about what it means to be an adult child from an addictive home. You know, would you be willing to read this? And I think that these conversational seed droppers need to come consistently um, because they're scared. They don't want to get into the depth of their pain. They don't want to believe that their family, their original families, had an effect on who they are today at 35, 45 years of age. And so we're not blaming their parents. Um, what you're saying is, though, when you're raised in that kind of family, there's things you didn't get to learn, and they're interfering with our relationship now. You know, would you be willing you know, to take a look at this? So when you see the different behaviors, call them on it, try and connect that to the past, let them know that there's help, and there's help in various forms. There's help on various blogs, there's help in various books, there's therapists, there's counselors. Doctor, what are some of the common misconceptions that we have about alcoholics or people who struggle with addiction? Oh, I think one of the common misperceptions is that uh, certainly that they could just stop if they wanted to enough. If they just love their kids, love their wives enough, they could just stop. And it's not an issue of willpower. And I have to tell you, this is what they have the greatest guilt and shame about is when they get into recovery is how their behaviors affected their kids and their partners. And that, you know, what does happen is addiction becomes a primary disorder and people lose the ability to allow their values to dictate um, their life. And, uh, you know, we've got changes in the brain that are going on. That prefrontal cortex is not working and they're operating from another base level and they don't have that will of choice. I, you know, and I think, you know, the perceptions really could be that one, they could stop if they really wanted to. And the other is, you know, that they don't love their family. And as I said, that's their greatest sense of shame and guilt when they get into the recovery process. They love their family very deeply. They've lost the ability to show that love with any kind of consistency. The book is It Will Never Happen to Me, Growing Up with Addiction as Youngsters, Adolescents, and Adults. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Black and her work, you can visit claudiablack.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I'd really like to leave the listeners with that you don't have to live a life of a script, but there is choice out there. And there is a recovery process for everybody who's affected by addiction, be it the addicted person, the partner, the adult child, and the healing for young children if we can help access resources for them at the time of which they're growing up. Dr. Block, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's truly my pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. She's here today to discuss how to stop being stuck. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you so much for having me today. So, Allison, I hear so many people telling me that there are things they want to do or goals they want to achieve, but they just feel like they're so stuck and they can't move forward. 
What happens when we need life to be a certain way? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the minute we need life to be a certain way, we're going to suffer because life is always going to be uncertain. And a lot of us, we look for certainty because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. But the problem with that is that we can't predict what's going to happen in life. So the minute something uncertain happens, like the pandemic or a job loss or a child has a problem, we fall apart because we believe that that certainty is not there for us and therefore life's not working out. And we forget is that life can work out many different ways. And this need for certainty makes us feel stuck. And the minute we feel stuck, we don't move forward. We don't look for expansion. We don't come up with new ideas. We don't live our best life because we're just clinging to the past and we're just clinging to the way we thought life would be. And what's so fascinating is usually life is inviting us. It's singing to us to do something new, do something different. Sometimes we have an opportunity and a possibility and we can't even see it because we're so looking for the way we thought life would happen. And this actually just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have a client who, well, a friend client who had, has an autoimmune disease, and he is very into alternative therapies. And so he was meditating, and he was doing Reiki, and he was doing all these great things, but he wasn't getting better. And one day he went to a doctor who said, you know, if you want to really feel better, you have to have this medical treatment. And he freaked out, and he was like, I'm not having this medical treatment It wasn't supposed to be like this. I'm an alternative person. And it's so interesting. The first thing I did to him when he told me this story is I read him a story from The Gift of Maybe. And it's about a man who is in a flood. And he is on his roof. And as the water was rising, a neighbor in a rowboat appeared and told him to get in. And he said, no, the Lord will save me. And then a firefighter appeared in the speedboat. And the guy said, climb in. And the man said, no, the Lord will save me. And next, a helicopter appeared, and the pilot shouted that he would lower a rope to the man on the roof. But the man said, no, the Lord will save me. Eventually, the man drowned, and he went to heaven. And we asked God, why didn't you help me? God shrugged and said, I sent the neighbor. I sent the firefighter. I sent the helicopter. What more do you want? And that's what happened. And my friend was immediately moved, and he was like, I didn't even see this. I was so stuck on going this alternative route that I never even considered that this was a new possibility. And what's so amazing about the story is that he really took this to heart and he started the treatment. And this is the first time he has felt better in years. And I'm not saying that medical treatment is is always the right way. But what I am saying is that he was stuck on how it was supposed to be. And there was a helicopter and a firefighter and there were all these things there for him and he couldn't see it. Because he thought life is this way and this is how it has to be and I am stuck and I I can't figure it out. So when we're able to think about stories like this, there's always something else for us if we're willing to let go of the past and be open to something new. You know, we look for certainty instead of possibility. And I so understand why we do this because deep down we just want to be okay. But what we fail to see is that our okayness is when we're open. Our okayness is when we look at life and we say, what is life offering me right now? Instead of demanding it has to be a certain way, we open and we expand and we allow life to happen in front of us and we avail ourselves to so much more that is possible. And sometimes we're really not stuck. It's just we're holding on to something that no longer is. And when we allow ourselves to put that down, we open up to all that can be. I know in my life, most of the pain that I've experienced was because of all of the woulda, coulda, shouldas that I really believed, you know, the way things were supposed to be. And when you hold on to that mentality, it really does cause so much unnecessary pain. And, And I learned that I had to release those expectations. So what have you done and what do you teach to help release those expectations so that we can move forward? Well, well, the first thing is to create awareness, which, which is a, it's a big ask, right? Because we have these limiting beliefs that we feel are real. We feel the reality. But once we start to feel that tightness, that stuckness, we have to remember what that feeling is, that pain, that fear, and create this awareness. And we have to start asking ourselves, you know, am I holding on to the past? Am I clinging on to something 
that no longer exists. That's the thing, too. Sometimes we're just going this cycle in our head. We want things to be a certain way, but they're not that way. And, you know, there's a level of acceptance that we have. But I don't mean acceptance with resignation because sometimes they're like, okay, I'll just accept the things the way they are and not move forward with my life. It's almost like I consent to receive this situation the way it is. And I am so open to all that's possible. So it's a constant asking ourselves, how am I feeling? Am I feeling uptight? Am I feeling pain? What is life telling me in this moment? Because if we can do that, if we could let go and not grab and not cling and not look for safety, we are going to be so open to the life that is waiting for us. And usually we are the ones that are limiting our lives. So this is a tough one because it's hard to let go of the past, but there's so much waiting for us if we're willing to be open to what life is offering us in the moment. Allison, do you have an exercise that you can leave us with? I love the story. This story about, you know, the man on the roof, that is a beautiful story to read every week. Because when you read that story, when you think about the story, you laugh because you immediately, you think to yourself, oh yeah, I've been that person on the roof. So that story alone, if we remember that, we're automatically going to laugh because we know when we're resisting. So again, just creating that awareness within ourselves and asking us the questions, am I coming to the moment empty and open? Am I holding on to what happened yesterday? Am I not letting go? Am I not availing myself to all that's possible? So it's about acceptance, consenting to receive, thinking about that man on the roof, because we're all that person at some times in our lives, and asking the right questions and just opening, because again, life is usually offering us something. And if we're willing to take it, it might lead us in a a beautiful direction that we never could have expected. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Allison and her work, you can visit her website, alisoncarmen.com. Or as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. We'll be right back. Do you see the value in what you have? I recently made a virtual presentation to a group, and after I was done presenting, we had a discussion about interpersonal relationships. During our conversation, many people expressed concern about how easily they are being replaced. They felt like there was no value given to them and or a relationship by a friend, partner, family member, or employer. Hearing so many people express the same feeling made me start to wonder if we have become a society of disposables. It reminded me of an expression my mother used to say, out with the old and in with the new. This is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to see the value in what you have. It seems like just about every aspect of our life today is disposable. We throw away televisions, computers, clothing, phones, food, furniture, and so much more. By contrast, when I was growing up, we fixed everything. There was a neighborhood television repairman. We ate leftovers for dinner. We took our shoes to the local shoemaker for new heels. Baby diapers were cloth, and appliances were kept until they could no longer be repaired. We drove the same car until it died on the road, and marriages lasted until death do us part. While it is true that we have more conveniences and opportunities than our parents and grandparents, I believe our ancestors had something that many of us lack the ability to attach to and appreciate what they had. Today, we want immediate gratification. If it's broken, an old model, or not working the way we want, we simply throw it out and replace it with something new, something shiny and upgraded. Is it possible that we are carrying our new disposable mentality into our relationships? How many people do you know that cut off contact with someone with whom they had a disagreement? They end the relationship and find someone new to fill the void. How many marriages suffer from infidelity because of boredom or not having a particular need met? One spouse moves on to someone new and creates a new family, often breaking ties with their old partner and even their children. How many employers replace or demote an employee for a minor infraction without giving that person a second chance? They hire a replacement. If any of these scenarios sound familiar to you, and I know they do to me, Perhaps it's time to examine how we interact with others. Are we looking for a quick fix? Would we be willing to cut someone out of our life because we are angry? Are we considering replacing a spouse or have already done so before exploring every avenue to repair the relationship? Would we fire an employee without giving it a second thought? If you believe you may have adopted a disposable mentality, Now's the time to make a change. Start nurturing your relationships. Put in the time and do the necessary work. 
Nothing worth having comes easily. Appreciate and value what you have, material items and relationships, and stop keeping an open eye looking for something better. Empathize with others before taking action. Repair something before tossing it in the trash. If you feel like someone who has been replaced, remember, we can't change or control other people and how they behave, but we can change our behavior. We can change the way we respond and the way we treat others. And little by little, perhaps, our treatment of others may just start a movement in a more positive direction. Who knows? One day, we may learn to treasure the old and forget the new. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. She wants to be home with her friends, but at this moment, she's fighting a brain tumor. Please take a moment and join St. Jude in finding cures and saving children. Visit stjude.org. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. What happens when a vision of creative freedom, courageous risk-taking, and good timing come together? According to Paul O'Brien, the answer is a life filled with success on your own terms. Paul teaches a process for making the best decisions with an ever-improving sense of timing. He's the author of Intuitive Intelligence, Make Life-Changing Decisions with Perfect Timing. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Paul, decision-making is an important skill, but many of us are not very good at it. Why do you believe that is the case? Why do we have so much trouble making decisions? Well, we go wrong in a, by uh, being too emotional and impulsive uh, and, and being guided by strong feelings in the moment, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we uh, can be... Um, sidetracked by thinking too much and overanalyzing and procrastinating and waiting for more information and and thereby missing a window of opportunity. So we've got to find the sweet spot between those two, and that's where intuition comes in. So your book is entitled Intuitive Intelligence. What does that mean, intuitive intelligence? Well, intuition is the ability to uh, acquire knowledge without recourse to conscious reasoning. It's kind of a direct route, um, and, and different meanings can range from uh, direct access to unconscious knowledge, uh, inner sensing, inner insight, unconscious pattern recognition, etc. I think of intuition as a delicate little antenna along with the five senses, which are big antenna, that's bringing in information uh, from uh, outside of ourselves, and in particular from a, a, a resource that I call infinite intelligence, which Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. So you can think of your intuition as a, del- as a tiny little antenna. It's sort of like tuning in uh, a ham radio back in the 50s. You know, you want to you get that signal from Bora Bora. You've got to very carefully tune that in to get that frequency and avoid all the noise on the line. And that's our problem. There's too much noise. Mm-hmm. There's information bombarding us on every front. Half of it is just erroneous. And our senses are being uh, stimulated on every possible front for the sake of turning us into consumers or whatever. And so it's very difficult to get the noise out of the system or to calm down. So I have techniques in the book, Intuitive Intelligence, on how to do that so that we can access uh, intuition when we need it the most. It's that voice inside of us. I mean, most of us get that feeling when we have to make a decision. And, and, you know, we kind of know what we should be doing, but for whatever reason, we don't follow that. We don't tune in. So could you share one of your techniques with us? Well, for instance, I have a thing in the book I call O'Brien's Law, kind of half-jokingly, and it goes like this. The stronger the feeling, the less trustworthy it is when it comes to making a strategic decision. Now, this is completely flabbergast most people because most people assume, well, if if I have a really strong feeling, that's an indicator of that's the way that I should go. And as I point out in the book, most strong feelings like fear or anger or or jealousy or craving um, are really the product of the ego, and they're not um, they're not necessarily uh, a, a good uh, 
criteria for decision making at all. In other words, we're, we're liable to make a very bad decision in the heat of the moment. And so in the book, I, I have exercises for calming down and for letting mindfulness, um, doing some mindfulness practices in order to give the intuitive sense uh, a, a chance to be heard. Because the feelings that come from uh, intuitive sensing are never really overpowering. They're, it's kind of a subtle uh, feeling. A gut feeling is not going to just knock you over. So the first step is we have to get access. And the way to get access is to get the noise out of the system. Uh, and there's several techniques I have in the book. I've got many different chapters on this, on how to be mindful of synchronicities, on how to contemplate them, on how to uh, use divination in order to uh, um, stimulate the intuition. So that's the trick. You can't force intuition to happen when you want it, and it's not going to be in the form of a really strong feeling. So you've got to buy yourself some time, and you've got to give your, your, your intuitive intelligence some space. Paul, you just mentioned the word divination. What does that mean? Well, divination are these ancient techniques for stimulating the intuition to think outside the box around problems that logic can't handle. There's a lot of problems in life that logic can't handle, like relationships or timing issues. But different forms of divination systems are tarot cards is one form. The I Ching, which is the one that I have used my entire adult life, which is uh, called the Book of Changes in Chinese, is another one. And these are often confused as uh, being fortune-telling systems, but they're not. These are ways to use a set of archetypes, and these are configurations of human energetic patterns that we all have inside of us. So if you have a problem that logic can't handle and you want to get uh, some input from outside uh, the realm of the rational brain, you might, you know, use one of these systems and outside of the realm of black and white thinking because there's always more than two solutions to any problem. And basically by reading between the lines, relative to whatever issue you brought to it, you might get a new idea. It's certainly going to take you outside the realm of your ego because these systems don't really care about your ego. They just basically want to reflect uh, the energy that you bring to them. You write about finding the perfect timing for decision-making. How can we learn to tell when it is the right time? Well, that's where intuitive intelligence comes in because... There's two questions that you have to answer if you're contemplating a major change in life. And these are the kind of decisions I'm writing about in the book. And the two questions are the what question and the when question. The what question, logic can help with that. That's the question that um, that asks, that's the question, what is the best move to make? What is the best next move I might make? And the the when question is the timing question, and when should I execute that? Difficulty with timing and why the expression timing is everything has been around for so long is because um, it's entirely intuitive. The timing question is almost 100% intuitive. And so the better your intuitive intelligence gets, the better that your timing is going to get. And, and so you're going to make the right moves at the right time. That's not an easy thing to do. So you've got to cultivate intuitive intelligence to be able to do that. The book is Intuitive Intelligence, Make Life-Changing Decisions with Perfect Timing. If you would like to get more information about Paul and his work, you can visit divination.com. Paul, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, I want people to understand that they can become more intuitive and that they can make better decisions. And the quality of your decisions is going to determine the level of success and happiness in life more than any other factor. So I, I, I want to encourage people to not, to not give up on their dreams and to take some time to do the self-discovery process to figure out what does fascinate you and then take the steps to make great decisions on the, on the path. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel like there is no support and you are doing things all on your own? With hypnosis, you can bring in the feeling of being supported. 
Hi, I'm Mary Beth Battaglia, and I am a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. Many times, people feel disconnected and the weight of the world upon them. It's not a very comfortable place to live in. Through the mind and visualization, we can create support within us and all around us. Take a moment to take a nice deep breath in and slowly let it out. And imagine yourself in a forest sitting against a tall, strong tree. Allow yourself to feel the tree having your back. Feel the love from the tree. Feel the support and draw from its strength to help you feel good within and supported. Allow yourself to really embrace it and see yourself moving forward in your life with the support, with the strength from the tree. And just see yourself feeling complete and happy. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find out more about hypnosis at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often, that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. for to your health joining us today to talk about a solution for those suffering from irritable bowel syndrome caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is phoebe lapine a gluten-free chef culinary instructor and author of the book SIBO made simple welcome phoebe thank you for joining us it's great to be here so phoebe many people today suffer from ibs experts estimate that over 60 percent of all ibs cases are caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth So can you explain for us, what is SIBO? Sure. So I think there's a bit of a misconception going around in kind of this new education around gut health. Um, A lot of talk about the microbiome, about quote unquote, good gut bacteria. And the reality is that the majority of that good gut bacteria is in the large intestine, in the colon, not throughout the entire digestive tract. So of course, there's some populations, other places, but it really doesn't belong in the small intestine because that's where we absorb our essential nutrients and bacteria don't really have a function. And in fact, if it's there and competing for those food resources, it can cause a host of uncomfortable symptoms, which are related to IBS and um, downwind SIBO. So what happens is due to, you know, many different types of, um, breakdowns in your machinery. Um, It can cause bacteria or even fungi, other types of organisms as well to overgrow in your small intestines. And then when those organisms eat your food, they release gas and that gas doesn't really have anywhere to go so far up your intestinal tract. 
So it can really cause very uncomfortable bloating. It can cause flatulence, both like burping and out the other end since it's so far away from the other exit ramp. Um, And then, you know, of course, a lot of the other hallmarks of IBS, you know, constipation, diarrhea, and then some more kind of insidious symptoms like brain fog, skin issues, nutrient deficiencies, since again, they're eating your own nutrients, um, weight loss, weight gain, depending on what kind of critters are overgrowing. And, you know, it's got a big overlap with autoimmune disease because of a lot of the the dysfunction that's caused in that area of the gut, which can lead to intestinal permeability and then food sensitivities. So because everything that you just described could be attributed to something else, how is this problem diagnosed? Through a breath test, yeah. So there are over, you know, 40 different conditions that could present, you know, those hallmark four main symptoms of IBS, the bloating, the gas, the constipation, the diarrhea. Um, For SIBO in particular, we're lucky because there's a test for it. Um, There's some argument about how accurate the testing is, but meta-analysis has come back that, you know, whatever you want to call it, people with abnormal tests tend to do better and have improved numbers once they go through treatment. Um, So how the breath test works is really interesting, I think, is that you have to prepare for 24 hours. It's a little bit laborious. um, And go on a certain diet where you're eating very limited foods and then fasting overnight. And then essentially you drink a sugar solution and essentially it's really only bacteria that would be reacting to that sugar solution and producing certain gases so you breathe into a tube every 15 minutes kind of as that sugar solution is slowly making its way through your system and then they measure out the amount of gas in your breath and can kind of tell where there are populations along the way that shouldn't be there how is SIBO usually treated so there are a few different methods. Um, The first one is just conventional antibiotics. Um, The important thing about having a test in the first place is kind of determining which types of critters are overgrowing so that you know which types of medication will be most effective. So those with hydrogen dominant um, SIBO will take a drug called Zyfaxin or Rifaximin um, in the conventional aisle. And then if it's methane dominant SIBO, you might have to add on another antibiotic on top of that. But then there's incredible data also for the herbal antimicrobial route. So these are various compound herbs, but then also kind of single herbs like oregano oil, berberine herbs, and then specifically for methane, um, allicin garlic, which is a derivative of garlic. I know a lot of people with IBS react to garlic, but this is just a special derivative that's incredibly antimicrobial and good for those methanogens. And then the third option is something called the elemental diet, which is really not a diet at all. It's a medical solution. And um, you basically drink it in place of meals for a few weeks. And um, because it's your nutrients in its most elemental form, it gets absorbed kind of immediately upon reaching the small intestines and doesn't have a chance to feed anything below. What's the most important part of a treatment plan? The most important thing for anyone's uh, treatment plan is to first uncover your root causes. So why is the SIBO occurring? Is it because you have low stomach acid? Is it because you know, you don't have a gallbladder anymore? Is it because of maybe a host of different autoimmune conditions that could be limiting the way that food moves through your small intestine? Is it because you have endometriosis and there could be, you know, various growths outside of your uterus that are compressing your intestines and forcing things not to move through enough? Is it, you know, that you had some sort of abdominal surgery and have scar tissue internally that you didn't even know about? That's, again, kind of constricting your intestines. You have to kind of go through the list and it's very, very long and uncover, you know, what your causes may be. One of the most common causes is just a simple case of food poisoning and some of the damage that can arise to how our migrating motor complex, which is this system that moves moves food through the small intestine, how that functions. That's one of the main buckets for why people get SIBO. Um, so those treatment options that I laid out, they can apply to anyone. It's, you know, depends on how bad your SIBO is, what type of SIBO you have, and then, you know, you can come down to to lifestyle issues. But then I think what many practitioners are not equipped to help people with or just 
don't spend enough time helping people with is what happens in the aftermath. So again, the prevention to make sure that it's not a chronic condition, um, which again goes back to making sure that you at least identify and protect against some of your root causes. Some of them may not be able to be healed, um, like missing a gallbladder, but you know, if you're missing a gallbladder and missing those essential bile acids, there are bile acids that you can take for that. Um, but then there's just this whole issue of healing the gut off the back of treatment. You know, there's a lot of inflammation and dysfunction that just the SIBO itself can breed. So it's a kind of fine line after the fact with diet and lifestyle to make sure that you're healing for the long haul and also making sure that you're not contributing to another form of dysbiosis of gut imbalance with the beneficial bacteria in your large intestine because those are so important. So diet is a place that a lot of people get confused by. It's not necessarily a treatment in and of itself. You can cure your SIBO without ever changing your diet, but I think it's really difficult to heal your gut for good and prevent it from coming back without, you know, take, making some changes and um, trying to heal your gut lining post-SIBO, trying to re reduce some allergens that may be a result of SIBO. A lot of people get food sensitivities and that kind of just spurs the inflammation from your immune system. The book is SIBO Made Simple. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit Gary Sinise Foundation. Org. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.